The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Setter. I'm your host for today. We are recording episode six of season two of Young and Healthy. And our topic today is child abuse prevention. This is an important, heavy topic that we are thrilled to have three experts in the, in the studio with us today. Kathy, Sarah, and Ashley have joined us to help us understand this topic and understand how um, we as families and as adults in the lives of children can help make sure that kids are safe. Um, I'm going to give them each an opportunity to introduce themselves. So Kathy, could I start with you? Would you tell us a bit about you and your role? Sure. I'm Kathy Makroff. I am one of the child abuse pediatricians at the Mayerson Center. And Sarah, to you next. Sure. Hi, I'm Sarah Zawali. I'm a senior specialist at the Mayerson Center and help lead Joining Forces for Children, our prevention arm. And Ashley. Yeah, my name's Ashley Cremins, and I'm one of our forensic interviewers at the center. So grateful you all joined us today. Thank you for that. Um, and we mentioned the Mayerson Center in your um, introductions, and I we, we will get to that in a moment, listeners, um, the explanation of that. But I, I think that, Ashley, would you start us off with some um, some numbers that can help us understand the um, the number of kids who are impacted by abuse and neglect in our community each year? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, at the Mayerson Center, we serve uh, a variety of counties in Ohio, but prim- some of our primarily our counties are from Hamilton County. And in Hamilton County in the past year, uh, the screened in reports that we received from them, so the numbers of children that were actually screened in for services, Uh, that they saw last year for things like medical neglect was about 293 kids. And then for more basic general neglect was 4,751 kids. Um, For physical abuse, it was 4,455 children. And for sexual abuse, that was 344 children. So that's just a a fraction of the children that were just screened in for services. So you have to remember that there are other larger numbers of people that were screened out that didn't meet like the requirements for an, for a report. And then we also see from seven other counties. So that's just a portion of what came across our doors last year. So if I was doing some rough math while you were saying that, that's somewhere between 9,000 and 10,000 kids um, who were screened in for services at the Mayerson Center. So Kathy, would you tell us a bit about the Mayerson Center and the work that you all do? Sure. Well, the Mayerson Center is one of the divisions at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, We are located uh, within the walls of Cincinnati Children's. We see patients for suspected physical abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect, as Ashley just mentioned, some of the numbers. Um, And outside of clinical care, we perform research, uh, we educate, 
Uh, and something we're going to concentrate on today is our uh, prevention work. So we do prevention with our patients and families um, and prevention in the community. And I'm going to hand it over to Sarah and talk so she can talk a little bit more about that prevention in the community. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. I think um, we are really lucky at the Mayerson Center because um, it's pretty unique that we do have this opportunity to have a prevention arm and work with you know over 50 organizations across um, the greater Cincinnati region to really um, be a collective impact organization. We know that we can't prevent child abuse and neglect alone. This has to be a community effort. And so joining forces for children um, really just is uh, looking to reduce the impact of childhood adversity by promoting resilient families in an equitable community. And we do that by bringing awareness on adverse childhood experiences such as child abuse and neglect. We advocate for equity and, um, and justice for our community and collaborate with multiple um, organizations across Cincinnati to achieve um, you know best outcomes for our kids. So when you are talking about um, adverse childhood, um, what was that term? I want to get it just right. Sure. Adverse childhood experiences. Adverse childhood experiences. What type of experiences are included in that kind of um, classification of experiences? Yeah, so adverse childhood experiences, of course, include um, things like childhood abuse and neglect, but it also includes just other experiences that um, might be difficult to overcome um, for children 0 to 18 years of age. So those could be anything from um, experiencing a divorce to living with a parent uh, with a drug problem, being exposed to domestic violence or community violence in the home, and really just other household dysfunctions. So Kathy, one of the adverse childhood experiences that Sarah mentioned is physical abuse that a child may experience. Can you tell us a bit more? We now use the term abusive head trauma, but many know this as shaken baby syndrome. Regardless, this is a devastating form of physical abuse, usually resulting in permanent and severe brain injury. But the good news, it's 100% preventable. Research shows us that the most common trigger for somebody to shake an infant or child is crying. In infants, we know that crying is a very normal activity that all children do. It's a communication tool. It allows the infant to tell us that something's wrong. They're hungry, they have a wet diaper, that they're sick. It's also something um, that some infants cry for no apparent reason, and this is often referred to as colic. And let's be honest, crying can be really, really irritating. Um, and this is where the essential prevention piece comes in. All caregivers need to have the permission to say, this crying is really annoying to me, and I am at my wit's end. I'm exhausted. I'm stressed. I just need a break. Um, and that's okay. So first of all, you have to make sure that your infant is okay. They don't have a fever. They don't have you know, a really dirty diaper. They're not hungry. And once you know that their needs are met, um, you can try to rock them, play soft music, um, you know, do something to um, try to calm them down. 
If that isn't working, then all caregivers need to have the permission. Make sure your baby's in a safe place, a safe crib, um, and it's okay to take a break. It's okay to ask for help. There's no shame in asking for help. Um, it's okay to sort of walk away as long as your baby is safe and you're not leaving your baby alone. Um, there should be absolutely no shame in that. And everybody who cares for an infant, if it is a, uh, a loved one, a family member, a caregiver, a daycare provider, needs to know this information and needs to be given that permission. It's okay. It's okay to feel stressed if the baby is crying. Just don't pick up the baby. Don't do anything to the baby if you are feeling stressed. And here's some history about shaken baby prevention. This information has always been provided at the birth hospital with prevention programs. But we think a better or an additional place to provide this information is during the first few well-child appointments. Here, the focus isn't on the mother or the mother and the baby. The focus is on the child. And it's also closer to that time with peak infant crying, which is somewhere between one to three months of age, the sort of colic period. And so this should always be part of the anticipatory guidance and, and only takes a few extra seconds of the visit. And one more point, this should not be reserved for just new parents or new caregivers of the first child. Um, we just published a paper with data from Cincinnati Children's that shows that many of our patients diagnosed with abusive head trauma had younger siblings. And I have to give a shout out to Sarah because we were in a, in a journal club and she said, I have a question. And the question was about that, that point and uh, it led to a, a very important research study that we did. So the next piece of physical abuse prevention I want to discuss is geared towards both caregivers and healthcare providers. And it is recognizing certain injuries in young children, especially young children who are not yet mobile, uh, not moving around too much. And this is usually infants younger than six months. Some of these injuries include bruising on the skin, small bleeds in the whites of the eyes, we call it subconjunctival hemorrhages, um, or mouth injuries. And to caregivers, parents, to healthcare providers, these injuries may seem trivial, like they, they, they don't need any medical intervention, uh, but they're not trivial at all. Uh, they're not trivial at all. They may indicate that this child has been harmed, and they may indicate that the child has more injury that would, that would be detected with an x-ray or another, um, another imaging like a, like a CAT scan. Um, and these injuries are sometimes referred to as sentinel injuries. And there have been a number of studies demonstrating that for some children who are diagnosed with serious injury like uh, uh, abusive head trauma or shaken baby syndrome, when they look back, these, these, um, these patients had um, sentinel injuries, but they weren't recognized as important injuries at the time. And perhaps if they were, they could have prevented the later sometimes devastating injury like um, abusive head trauma. So I just want to put out there uh, to all the listeners, if you suspect that a child is being abused, 
please report it to your local child abuse reporting hotline. And in Hamilton County, Ohio, this number is 513-241-KIDS. So thank you for that, Kathy. That was, um, there's a whole lot of incredible information in there. Um, I think if, if we could, one thing I'd love to go back to. So you mentioned that, um, in, in infants and toddlers, those, those well checks, um, can be a good time for medical professionals to be able to identify these, um, these potential sentinel injuries and other indications that, um, a baby need may need, um, a, a referral to the number that you just gave us. Um, are there, um, outward signs that other adults who are just in a baby or toddler's life should be looking for that might kind of raise one of those red flags, um, to, to look a little harder? Sure. I think if, um, um, there, there are signs if a baby isn't feeding well, if a baby is vomiting, um, if a baby does seem to be crying more than usual, um, these can be signs of injury. Um, and, um, and then I, I would want uh, a caregiver to take that child in for medical evaluation. Fantastic. Thank you. And I do remember you mentioned the birth hospitals, the communications with families happens at the birth hospitals. And I absolutely remembered, I think I even had a door hanger, um, that, um, was, but it, you know, it's a really important reminder that it's really okay to set a baby down in a safe place and walk away. Um, and I, um, those first months of, a baby's life can be so, so hard for families. Um, but I, I love what you're saying about the, the checking in also in education additionally with, um, with their pediatricians. Right, right. And I think, right, the, the key point, I think, is just giving permission. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's normal to feel this way. It is normal to feel irritated when a child is crying. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It doesn't mean you're a bad human. Mm -hmm. It means you're just normal. Mm -hmm. Um, What's not okay is to act on that irritation um, against the child. So I think the the giving the permission is really the key point and giving it to everybody who comes in contact or cares Mm -hmm. for that child. I think giving permission to be human is is a really important thing that comes up so often in parenting and also to recognize when you need help and I just need a break. The baby will not stop crying and calling somebody else to say, I have to get out of here for a little bit. That's okay to do too. Right. And I, I've heard that from many pediatrician parents. They need a break. They can't take this. So hopefully to all the listeners out there, if pediatricians are feeling that way, that gives permission for everybody to feel that way. So thank you, Kathy, for kind of setting the stage with the youngest children. Um, Those numbers that Ashley had for us were large, which to me would indicate that there are likely children who are older who also are experiencing some form of abuse. Um, Ashley, would you help us understand a bit about how families of older kids um, can be 
looking for signs of abuse and help prevent it in older kids as well? Yeah, I mean, some of the things we look for, again, similar to what Kathy said, are are bruising that would be suspicious or bruising that would be concerning. Um, I mean, older children have the ability to talk to us to tell us what's going on as well. So if you're, if you see something, one of the things that I always encourage is if you see something, ask or say something, um, especially with kids with like a lot of bruising on their body, or you're just concerned about their, if they have behavior changes or they're becoming more withdrawn or they're not as active in school or at home as they would have been in the past. Sometimes those are changes that we can see in kids. Uh, But kind of like Kathy said with um, talking about taking breaks and things like that, it's just as important to do that with older children as it is to do that with young children. I mean, you have to understand that parenting is frustrating from birth all the way till they're out of your house. So every time they go through different stages of adolescence and teenage years, they're gonna push your buttons and it's gonna be difficult. So you need to remember to, you know, if you get upset, take a break before you jump to discipline immediately because a lot of times you're gonna do something that maybe wouldn't have been what you needed to do if you're upset going into disciplining your child. Um, But also it's really important to be consistent. Like you can't jump from one discipline technique to another. Kids need consistency when we're talking about discipline and approach discipline in a loving manner. This is a time to teach your children about right and wrong behaviors and things like that and helping kids understand consequences for their actions. Even young children, like if they draw on the wall, encourage them to be the person to clean it up because they have to understand that there was a consequence for doing something wrong. Um, and with young kids, like using timeouts and things like that, trying to do things that are allowing them to have some space and time to cool down uh, and helping them kind of self-regulate is important too. Um, and then just kind of making sure you're praising their positive actions too. You can't just always focus on the negative. A lot of times kids, when they get in trouble, parents will only focus on the bad things that are happening. And it's really important to praise what's going good in their lives as well. So those are some, um, some great takeaways for families for preventing physical abuse. You also gave us some numbers earlier about sexual abuse in Hamilton County. And would you um, share with us a bit about what some of the indicators might look like for that and what families and adults in kids' lives can be looking for that might indicate that a kid, that a child is experiencing sexual abuse? Yeah, and I think it's kind of important to understand some data too, specifically around sexual abuse. So um, it's kind of helpful to know like one in 10 kids potentially experience sexual abuse before they're 18. And a lot of times people teach their kids about stranger danger, but typically 30% of sexual abuse occurs within your family or about 60% happens with someone that a family member knows or trusts. So it's not always someone that you don't know. about only 10% of sexual abuse with children happens with a stranger that they're not aware of. So when we're talking about what to look for or risks, um, you need to realize that it's it's great to teach your kids about stranger danger, but you also need to teach them about safety within the people that they know and trust as well. So the people that unfortunately do this to children seek out opportunities to be with kids in, a, in an environment where they would trust an adult, like a church or a sporting league or within school clubs, activities, things like that. So it's really important to talk with kids about, you know, talking about body safety, things like that. Um, and it's it's hard to say warning signs about sexual abuse or what to look for because not every kid is gonna have 
physical signs or emotional signs of sexual abuse, not everyone is going to show any of those things. So I can give you like an idea of what something could potentially be, but a child could be sexually abused and show no signs at all too. Um, so when you're talking about like what sexual abuse is, I want to give some examples so that you just kind of know mm -hmm. what it can be. So it can mm -hmm. be things like um, forcing a child to look at pornographic images or making them perform a sexual act or exploiting them in any way or even taking pornographic images of children can constitute sexual abuse. Um, so when you're kind of thinking about what on that spectrum is potentially sexual abuse, those are just some examples. Um, so when we're thinking about like physical signs that you might want to look for, in younger children, we get concerned if they test positive for like a sexually transmitted infection um, or if they have any bruising or swelling or bleeding um, to areas of their body, um, like their genital areas of their body, we would get concerned about that. Or changes in like their behaviors that you might see. But like I said, not every kid is going to have a change in behavior. Some kids can be can experience this and continue to lead perfectly normal lives and you would never know. Um, but some things that you might see are like withdrawing from school, withdrawing from friends, not wanting to be as engaged at home, um, more anger or more um, they're you know, lashing out at parents or they're lashing out at their friends. So you might see some, some changes like that in kids. Do you have any recommendations for an adult who might um, be concerned that a child is experiencing abuse and how they should go about having a conversation with that child um, or with the other adults in that child's life. Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things that I, I always advocate for when I'm talking with parents and caregivers is the importance of talking to your children about body safety before you ever have a concern. So encouraging to have that conversation early as soon as your child is communicating and understands things and have it often. So teaching them about the proper names for their body parts and you know, not allowing anyone to touch on those body parts unless when they're at a doctor's office and a parent is present and then letting them know who safe adults are that they can tell if something ever happens to their body, the safe grownups in their home. We also encourage safe adults outside of your home that you as a parent or a caregiver would trust that you know would come to you because a lot of times kids are told you can't tell your parents, you can't tell whoever you live with and it's an element of threat or fear that something might happen to them uh, so they don't tell because they take that very true that something's going to happen to somebody if I tell them. So having a person outside of the home is really helpful for a child to know, oh, I can tell grandma or I can tell my aunt or mom's best friend. Uh, it's really helpful for them to have that person and reminding kids as they grow and they develop that I'm here, we can talk if you ever want to talk to me about these things and letting them know what is comfortable for them. Teaching them about safe and unsafe touches are really important. So letting them know if at any point hugs become uncomfortable or people who give you kisses become uncomfortable, that you can say no to those things. A lot of times kids are told, oh, give grandma a hug or a grandpa a kiss before you leave. And if something's happening, that forced contact is being pushed upon them and they don't want to do that. So making sure that they're aware of what a safe and an unsafe touch for them would be and what to do if someone gives them a touch that makes them feel unsafe or uncomfortable. And if for some reason when you're having these conversations, they do tell you about something and a disclosure comes out, the most important thing is to try not to overreact. This They've now come to you. You're their trusted person. Do the best that you can to listen 
and encourage them to talk to the best of their ability um, and then let them know that you support them and that you believe them and that you're here for them um, and then report it to Children's Services like Kathy said before. Uh, in Hamilton County, 241 Kids is the number to report it to. Uh, and let your child know that you're going to protect them and you're going to do whatever that you can to make sure that they feel safe. So Ashley, one of the things that you just mentioned there that I'd love to explore a little bit um, more is this idea of um, an adult asking a child to give a family member or um, somebody else a hug or a kiss and the child not wanting to do it. Um, can we talk a little bit about that interaction? And I feel like it's just kind of a cultural thing sometimes to, to tell a kiddo to say goodbye with a hug or a kiss or something along those lines. How can we as parents think about that and make sure that we are supporting and keeping kids safe in those moments? Well, I'll just jump in really quickly and Ashley, please jump in as well. But you know, just thinking about um, when we think about a resilient family and that family unit, one piece of that is really respecting like the individual difference of each child and each member of that family. So there might be a child who does feel really comfortable with a hug goodbye, but there might, you know, you might have another more introverted or quiet child who isn't as comfortable with physical touches, which yes, doesn't have anything, you know, to do necessarily with uh, abuse or not, but just when we want to create a family unit that is resilient to stress, we really have to be mindful that each child comes to that event or comes to, um, you know, wherever they are with their own experiences and their own feelings. So just being respectful and, and being okay with them not giving a hug or not giving a kiss, you know, a wave goodbye or a high five, what else can they do um, to say goodbye if they don't feel comfortable with that? Yeah, it's really important to respect their boundaries and to have a supportive parent that that lets them know that it's okay to respect their boundaries. And if you're seeing something that's a concern, that that's, you know, a behavior where they've, this was someone that they did a hug or kisses with before, and now all of a sudden there's been a change or you're just noticing something, you, you know your kids best. You know when maybe they're not acting like they normally would have been acting or you feel like you're concerned about something. That's where it's a great opportunity to reinforce that conversation that we talked about with body safety and talk to them again about those safe and unsafe touches and exploring with them if someone's ever done something that made them feel unsafe or scared or uncomfortable because that's you know doing those conversations as uncomfortable as they may be are important to have with your kids because you're their person that they trust and a lot of times that's where those first disclosures come out are with their parents because the parent has been able to pick up on a change in their child's behavior and they ask and they finally kind of break down that barrier because a lot of times kids don't tell because of things that the person who may have been abusing them has been telling them that your parents will hate you or you're going to get in trouble or if it's someone within your family I'm going to go to jail because of this like they depending on what's happened there's so much that sometimes gets stacked against a child being comfortable and feeling ready to tell that it takes that parent or that caregiver or that person that's in their lives just extending that branch out to say is everything okay let's talk and giving them that opportunity to tell and even not just parents um, friends friends within your school friends mm -hmm. within your community 
if 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 you're if you see something with your friend and their behavior their behaviors have changed or um, sometimes friends tell other friends first because they feel like they can trust their friends more than they can trust their parents. So if you're if a friend from school tells you something that's concerning that someone's done something to them, it's really important that one you tell a, an adult that you trust, a teacher, a counselor, someone within the school, or your own parent, but also supporting and encouraging the friend that told you how important it is to tell an adult as well because that's the first step for them is to be able to acknowledge it and tell an adult as well. And for the adult, if in that scenario that you just explained, um, if if a person finds himself as the adult that a a friend discloses to, um, but they are like, whoa, my friend is going to get in so much trouble. Like, I think that that whole dynamic of somebody's going to get in trouble. Um, any words of advice for that adult who would absolutely need to make the call and make sure that the, the friend of their child is safe? Um, but and any words of advice on if, if somebody were to find themselves in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think if the friend, if there's a person that's told as an adult because they've heard it, from another friend, I think important again. It's important to reinforce that. Thank you for telling me this. This is really important. You know, you're you're being a great support to your friend by telling me because then we can do something about this. We can make sure that your friend is safe and that we're going to get this taken care of and we're going to do the best thing that we can to support them and get them help because I think that that's just making sure that they know that they didn't do something wrong by telling because maybe their friend said you can't tell anybody like mm-hmm. this is a huge secret, but they they need to know that it's important that an adult knows and thank them for telling them. So Sarah, I want to go back to um, something you said actually when you were introducing yourself that you feel so lucky that um, the Mayerson Center includes a prevention arm. And as soon as I say the word prevention, you get a huge smile on your face. Um, so will you tell us a bit about your world and what you do to help kids and kind of how this all fits into what Kathy and Ashley have shared with us so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And just, you know, of course, listening to Kathy and Ashley speak about physical abuse and sexual abuse, it can be really hard to hear because we do know and recognize that kids who have experienced abuse or neglect it can really have lifelong impacts. Um, it can have physical health impacts. It can have emotional ones as well. But we do know that when children have a supportive and caring adult in their life, and other protective factors, they can be really resilient and bounce back and not only just bounce back from those adverse experiences, but really thrive and do well throughout life. And that's really one of, you know, the kind of the missions of the Mayerson Center and Joining Forces for Children is really to focus on that resilience. We know um, now there's a lot of promising practices and great research that is just evolving rapidly um, that can help us mitigate those effects of child abuse and other adverse childhood experiences. So when kids live in a community that is supportive and nurturing, um, that is a protective factor. And also families 
um, that have protective factors in place also decrease that risk for child abuse as well. So I love this term protective factors, and it sounds like um, there could be all sorts of good things that would be considered protective um, for kiddos. Could you tell us a bit more about what some of those are and how, um, how families can kind of bring more of them in? Sure, absolutely. Um, I like to kind of think about the protective factors or there are those external ones that are in the community and family, but then there are also internal ones, those internal ones that we build up in ourselves as well. So I'll try to touch a little bit on both, but um, you know, anybody feel free to jump in if you guys think of some as well or have any other questions. But when we think about a family um, and the protective factors that they have to reduce um, some of those risks for child abuse or other adverse experiences, um, those are really parental resilience. So how, like Kathy had talked about with those stressful times with a baby or a toddler that you know, ah, you're gonna go crazy here with them screaming or crying. Like what are your, what's your own emotional capacity? How are you building your emotional capacity? What are those skills that you put in place such as, you know, deep breathing or spending some time in nature um, and just recognizing that it's good for your child to be good to yourself giving yourself that time. Um, building those skills up are so important because not only are you a model for your child, um, but you know when you regulate yourself, it is much easier for your child to regulate themselves as well. So parental resilience is just a big protective factor for families. But then also those social connections, when you think about when you do have a baby or you have children, um, oftentimes you can isolate yourself a little bit because you're so stressed and you don't have as much time to reach out to a friend. But you want to maintain those social connections because what happens when, um, you know, you're, you're car breaks down. Who do you have to call? Who are those people that you have in place that you can rely on? Or when you need that break from the baby, like who are those people that you can call? Those social connections are just so important. And then of course as a community and you know, promoting policies and things that really help families have those concrete needs met. So stable food, you know, stable housing, um, food security, all of those things really help um, keep kids safe. Then of course, knowledge of parenting and child development appropriate expectations are so important. You know, we have to recognize that toddlers one minute later might do some, the same thing that you told them not to do because that's where they are developmentally, having the, that knowledge. And as providers, it's our job to share that um, in those development. Like we really have to get that out there um, and helping also not only as providers at the hospital, but childcare providers. Sharing information on development is so important. And then, of course, um, understanding those social emotional needs of children are also another great protective factor that when families have all of those in place, we can reduce the risk for child abuse. So what do some of the internal factors then look like? 
So when we think about some of those internal factors and those skills that we can build in kids um, and also in families, right, and in the community, we do that through um, one project I'll bring up specifically that the Mayerson Center started working on is really just using a common language to name and really spot those strengths that we see in our children. And not only in our children, but thinking about when we have our strengths, naming it and saying it. It's okay to talk about the great things about us because those are the things that get us through the hard times in life. And so um, recognizing, focusing on the good, spotting those strengths that have gotten us through challenging times, such as bravery or determination or using your skill, social intelligence and your friendship skills. Um, those are all things that we have to really focus on so that we're not, as Ashley talked about before, just focusing on the negative and what we need to fix. We wanna think about what's really going right and how can we enhance those things and support those in children and families and be really strength focused. And I'll just say really quickly too around some other things with families, when we talk about, um, you know, being resilient during stressful times. There are a lot of things that we can do as a family um, that help promote those skills that kids really need around social emotional wellness through their life. And that's really just allowing for a wide range of emotions, um, respecting those individual differences. Um, as adults, we wanna model appropriate expressions of difficult emotions. Talking about emotions is really important. And then those things about maintaining routines. Um, consistency is huge. Kids feel safe, um, especially after a traumatic event. It is really important for kids to have consistency in their life and to know what to expect. We feel safe when we know what's gonna happen next. And then problem solving together. And of course, just um, making sure children and adults know that it's okay to ask for help. We all need it at different times. And I'll just throw in, um, and I think Ashley would agree, when, uh, Sarah, you were talking about recognizing and naming strengths, this is something we've started to do with our patients at the Mayerson Center. And not only does it give the, the child a lift, but as a, as a provider, and I would say I would say it would be the same as a parent, um, it, it, it really feels great to be able to give this gift um, of just naming a strength or recognizing a strength in your patient, in your child, in your student. Um, so I think it lifts both up equally when it happens. I think Kathy read my mind because I was going to highlight something very similar. Like we've, we, we piloted this project and we were using strengths cards and we're giving them out after interviews and we're, we're highlighting with patients like the strengths that we saw in them while we talked to them. And um, in one case in particular, the patient had a very difficult interview and we highlighted the strength and gave it to the parent so that the parent could speak with the child about it and the reaction from the parent to know that we ended a traumatic day on a, on a positive note. Like we try to end the interview in a way that's positive as possible, but that's a difficult place to be in for an hour, an hour and a half when we're talking to them. So for us to be able to say like, we noticed the strength in your child, it was, it was huge for that parent to be able to see it and then be able to then encourage that continued conversation with their child. So, and another thing that like kind of Sarah talked about was that those external factors is how important we encourage parents. Like you guys are going through a traumatic time, your child's going through a traumatic time, but 
you also are experiencing a trauma as the parent and the caregiver. So one of the things that we developed last year was a caregiver coping tool. So making sure parents are taking care of themselves if if their child's experienced trauma. So you can't take care of this child who's experienced a traumatic event without also taking care of yourself because you, as we've always said, one of our favorite things is you can't pour from an empty bucket. You have to take care of yourself Mm -hmm. in order to take care of the other people in your home. So I know that we have a few resources that, um, that are available for families and we'll put the full list in, um, in the description on the podcast. So anybody can find those, but are there any in particular that, um, you want to highlight real quick um, about what they are and why they're important resources? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've focused a lot on prevention, but think that like we focused on the numbers, this happens to children in the community. So it's important to recognize if your child has experienced a trauma, how they may react to trauma and ways that you might see changes in their behavior or their emotion or their physical reactions to trauma. So some of the resources that we have on our external page through the children's website are uh, a guide on how to help your child cope with trauma. And we have those broken down by um, a young child, a school-aged child, and your teenage child. So kind of covers an explanation of what trauma is and traumatic experiences. And then it, it goes over those what traumatic signs might be and how as a parent or a caregiver, you can support your child if you're seeing some of those reactions. Uh, one of the big thing though, is that if, if it's beyond what you feel like you can manage as a parent or your child, is a concern for a safety for themselves or for others, it's important to seek out mental health care for your child. So as we're wrapping up our time together, um, talking about this incredibly important topic, do you have any final thoughts um, or any final words of um, advice or help for families that you'd offer before we wrap it up? We covered so many areas today, so um, it would be difficult, but, um, but I think we can wrap it up with um, two thoughts, at least two thoughts. So number one, um, as a parent, as a caregiver, you know your child, so trust that gut. If you think that something is wrong, um, whether it's how they're acting um, their emotional state, or physically, if you think something is different with your child, act on that. Seek out uh, medical help. Seek out help. Um, report it to to uh, children's services if you think that um, it should be reported. Um, so trust your gut, number one. Um, and number two, um, for um, for all the listeners out there, um, even if you're feeling alone. Um, you've experienced something, something has happened, and you're feeling alone, you're not alone. Um, There are others out there um, who have uh, very similar, the same experiences. And even if you're feeling like, I need help, I I don't think I can reach out to anybody in my family, in my community, um, we're going to list a lot of resources, and there's a lot of help there. And there are people out there to help you. Um, so again, you're, you're not alone there. There is help out there. That seems like a lovely way for us to end this conversation. Thank you all three of you for being here, Kathy, Sarah, and Ashley. So grateful for your time and for joining us to share such great information on this very important topic. You're listening to the young and healthy podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much.
This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on March 31st, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco, and this episode was produced by Bo McMillan. Thanks, Bo. Thank you.